is the citizen army. And right at the root of this concept is the notion that every man, every able-bodied man, must belong to the militia. There's a universal draft implied. However, the draft that's implied with a militia is almost at every point the opposite of the way the draft functions in a statist society. We might say that drafting people to fight is virtually an inescapable concept for a nation. If they're marching in, then you pretty much have to fight. The question is, how do you go about getting everybody involved one way or another? To begin with, let's look at what happened when God constituted all of his people an army. We read that they were slaves in Egypt. We don't know exactly what they were allowed to do and not allowed to do in Egypt. We know that they had some type of a tabernacle or tent of meeting because when they came out, Moses had it, and it was a shrine for such objects as were deposited there. Probably the book of Genesis was kept there, uh, which of course was later expanded to the five books of Moses which were put in the tabernacle. But there was a tent of meeting, and Moses ministered before the Lord there on behalf of the people. We also know that they worshipped other gods. We know that they didn't get much rest, so whether they were able to keep much of a Sabbath day regularly, we don't know. Everything implies, however, that they were in a pretty bad estate. We know from the early chapters of First Chronicles that while the Jews lived in Goshen during Joseph's, when Joseph was influential in Egypt, they made forays and conquests into the land of Canaan. So they had some type of an army structure at that time. However, once they were steadily reduced to a state of abject bondage under subsequent pharaohs, apparently they had no type of military structure. However, they were not ignorant of it, and uh, there, was, there were elders in the society, we know, because when Moses came back, God said, meet with the elders. So he met with the elders. Later, later on, God tells these elders to be arranged as elders over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. But there were already some elders there. Later on, God says, I want you to build a tabernacle which is more glorious than this tent you have according to these specifications. But there was already some type of a tent in existence. These were not totally new things. And there was some type of militia or military understanding. We read in Exodus 13, verse 18, that when the Jews came out of Egypt, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. That is, uh, without any weeks of drill or boot camp, when all these people who had been slaves two days before spent the night uh, watching all night long at Passover and then marched out, they had a military organization. They were able to form ranks and march. There was something, a shadow of something already there. Literally what this says is not in martial array, but five in a rank. They marched out of Egypt five in a rank. And this expression, five in a rank, is translated in martial array several other times in the Old Testament. But if you were to, um, if you were to study the cross-references for in martial array here, you'd find that in Hebrew each time it says five in a rank. Now, that's not too hard to understand. Any of you who have been in the military know what that is. How many men are in a squad? You have a squad leader and everybody file forms next to him. How many men form to his left. Nine men. Okay? Then you execute a right face. Let's see, that's what it's called. And how many men are here in a platoon? There are five ranks. 
five squads of ten men each for a platoon of fifty men. That's the way it is today. Obviously, that's the way it was back then. You have elders over tens, right? That's the first rank of elders, elders over tens. Now, if you have those elders over tens arranged five in a rank, that gives you a platoon of fifty. So, the next rank is elders over fifties. Then the next rank is elders over hundreds. You put two platoons together, and what do you have? Army men. You have a company of a hundred men. By the way, that's ten by ten. It forms a square, basic architectural model. In fact, in the Bible, all of these rules about how the army is organized also show up in the organization or the descriptions of the tabernacle and temple because basically the walls of the tabernacle are people. And basically the, the stones of the temple are people. So you have an army organized around the commander's tent. That's the same thing as having a temple built of stones around a central sanctuary. It's the same thing as a vast array of people arranged around the throne of God. It's all the same. The same language is used uh, analogously back and forth. So you have elders over tens, squad leaders, platoon leaders over fifties, company commanders over hundreds. Then you don't have five hundreds. You go to a thousand. Ten companies make a battalion. Okay, ten battalions make a brigade. So you have basic military structure there, except that it's really not talking about the military in Exodus 18. It's talking about a peacetime situation. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, men who hate dishonest gain, can't be bribed. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they will judge the people at all times. So it's not talking about an army there, but these men would normally function as leaders in a local militia if there was any type of a drill or anything to take place. Now, when the trumpets were blown and the army was summoned, then skilled men would be set apart as appointed leaders. You might have a guy who is half blind uh, who made a real good judge and could sit in a court and make decisions, but he wouldn't be a very good military commander. So when the army is summoned together, we'll find that they, they took the men who were real good at commanding the military and made them temporary elders and leaders. But the system would have been the same. Now, who was mustered in this citizen army? Who was it that had to appear in the Israelite draft? And so what should we imitate if we were setting up a Christian society today? Well, that's given us in numbers. Numbers is uh, actually kind of a mistitle for this book. It should be called the mustering of God's army because there are two musterings of the army that take place in Numbers, in Numbers 1 and Numbers 26. When they first came out of Egypt, they were all numbered and enrolled in the army. And then in, just before they went into the promised land, after 40 years, after God had exchanged one people for another, then they're mustered and numbered again. But in Numbers chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, no, it's Numbers chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. No pens up here either, so I can't change my notes. God says, Take a mustering or a sum census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward. Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Okay, so every single man 20 years of age and older. 
That tells you the number, not 21, not 18, 20. 20. And then uh, commanders are set up too. Moreover, there shall be a man from each tribe, each one with the father's household. These are the names of the men who will stand with you. Of Reuben, Elizur, the son of Shedeor. Of Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerishaddai. And uh, since I'm real tongue-tied today, I'll read no further. But there you are, 20 years old and upward. Now, everybody was numbered, all the males except for who? Who is never drafted? Us guys. According to Numbers chapter 1, verse 48, verse 47 and 48, the Levites, however, were not numbered among them with their father's tribe. For the Lord has spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their numbers among the sons of Israel. Well, there are a number of reasons for that, some theological, some practical. Theologically, these people were in God's particular army, and so nobody was supposed to know how many they were. They were God's concern, not the concern of any of his lieutenants. But more particularly, they have other work to do. It says, but you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and so forth and so on. They have duties with the church which take primacy over the state. Now, if we were to look through the Bible, we'll find many occasions where Levites voluntarily joined up with the army, took up swords, and fought. But it was up to them. It's up to them. They were never drafted. Now, what happened when this draft took place? And everybody was summoned, and everybody had to appear. Well, the first thing that took place was that everybody was counted up and enrolled. Everybody had to be enrolled in the army. Everybody had to show up. It says in Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse 11, The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a sum of the sons of Israel to muster them, that's talking about military draft, then every one of them shall give a ransom for his soul to the Lord. When you... See, that translation here continually is wrong. You have to look at the margins, some of these passages. They're not translated by people who have any understanding of the military at all. So they, they mistranslate this. It keeps talking about census as if it was taking a census. It's not a census. You don't take censuses in the Bible. Uh, Caesar did. But uh, the Bible, they just don't take a census to find out how many people there are and how many toilets you have in your house. That's of no interest to a godly state. This is talking about military. So I'm going to have to keep glancing at the margin here. Okay, when you muster them, they will give this ransom for their souls that there be no plague among them when you muster them. Okay, remember that plague because that's important for what David does. This is what everyone who is mustered shall give. That literally says everyone who passes over to the ranks of the mustered men. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras. Half a shekel as a heave offering to the Lord. Okay, let's... Try to make this plain, because it's talking about ritual events. Okay, here's the turnstile right here. See it? And all these men are out here, and they're all lining up, queuing up. And as a man passes through, and uh, we enroll his name, he gives his half-shekel tax, and then he goes over and falls in to the rank of the mustard men. Now, that half-shekel tax is considered a heave offering, which means... You see this every week in church, that it's heaved up to God as a gift to him, and then he gives it back to somebody 
to administer on his behalf. Now, what we do in church is we bring our gifts forward. We bring bread and wine and money. And if somebody gave a contribution or a gift to the church, uh, now that we've started doing this, we could bring that forward too. And it's held up to God, and then it's given back to the elders, and it's the job of the elders to distribute it. And so the elders take the bread and they give it to you. The elders take the wine and they give it back to you. The elders take the money and they do with it what the elders determine should be done with it, taking you into counsel. And you can always come and talk to us about what you think ought to be done or not done with the money. So these are, that's the ritual. It's given up to God and then God gives it back to his office bearers. Now what happens to this money, war money that's taken in is, it's given to the Levites and the priests, and they give it to God as a heave offering, and God gives it back. It says, let's find out what happens. In verse 14, everyone who is, uh, everyone who is mustered from 20 years old and over shall give a heave offering to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, the poor shall not pay less than a half a shekel. When you give the heave offering to the Lord to make an atonement for your souls, and you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it will be a memorial to the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Okay, so it's given to the church. Money that's taken in connection with war is given to the church to build up the church. Now that's real interesting, because what happens in modern cultures when you win? Who gets all the money to build up what? The state gets all the money to build up the state. But, you see, when this is the law, then David can fight all the wars David wants, but all the money, he doesn't get any of it. Uh, and so the king, the political power, has no motivation to start wars, do they? Because they don't make anything. This the church makes something. Now, maybe the Levites and the priests are motivated to uh, call for a war here and there but they don't have the sword. See how the division of powers is implied here? The state is not going to get any particular benefit from the war, and I will see in more detail what happens to the booty from war, but right away this is the overall principle, and it will be the same thing as this that we just read, atonement money. Now, why is the atonement money needed? Well, it's because in the Old Testament when you shed blood, uh, it automatically called down the wrath of God. And that's, that type of subscription is not necessary any longer because the blood of Jesus Christ is our ransom silver, according to 1 Peter. But the principle is still there for us to learn from. If you want to study more about this passage, I have a chapter on it in the Law of the Covenant. Now, that's the first thing that happens. Everybody is summoned, and every man makes his half-shekel contribution to the upkeep of the tabernacle. Everybody affirms God. You don't affirm God, God's not going to affirm you. We have to affirm God first. We have to pay God his tithe. Some of you men wonder why you don't prosper. Maybe you're not affirming God. You don't affirm God, God won't affirm you. We come here on the first day of the week to affirm God, and then God gives us blessing, and he affirms us. It's real simple. You affirm him, he affirms you. You contradict him, he contradicts and thwarts you. So that's what goes on. Before you go out to war, you affirm the temple and the tabernacle. You build it up. You make this contribution. After all, all, these, all this money, boy, this is going to be a lot of money here, all these half shekels of silver, 
You could outfit your army with that, but you don't get to. Pay God first. He says he'll take care of you. Now, that's the first thing that happens. Everybody 20 years age and upward is enrolled in the army. Everybody has to come. But then some people get to go home. So you don't have a draft card that gives you an exemption up front. The exemption comes after you're summoned. In Numbers, uh, excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, we have the rules about who gets to go back home. And there's real good reasons for this. Theological and practical. Let's read about it in chapter 20. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots, uh, neither of which you're allowed to have, you can't have horses and so no point in having chariots. Clearly, in donkeys and mules aren't real good on chariots. They don't move real fast. Okay? So uh, if any of you did sneak out to see King David, you saw some real good example of chariot warfare. Uh, King David was real poor theologically, but that one scene where the Israelites are out there fighting and the Philistines come in in their chariots, goodness gracious me, like tanks just mowing everybody down. Well, it was well photographed. Okay, when you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, how can that be? Israel was supposed to be like the sand of the seashore, and yet there would be people even more numerous than them. Do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. In other words, the God who was able to handle the Egyptians, that particular God, he's the one who's with you, so don't worry. Now it shall come about when you're approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people, and he shall say, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching battle against your enemies today. Do not be afraid. Do not be faint-hearted or panic or tremble before them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now, this all takes place after everybody's been mustered. Half-checkel tax has been made. All the sheep have gone through the turnstile. They're all in the army. Then, at that point, after this sermon has been preached, this is a sermon here. I mean, this is just two, three verses here, but see, you preach for a half an hour and get everybody stirred up. After that sermon's been preached, then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man that has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Interesting, they dedicated houses back then. Let him depart and return. How would you do that? We don't do that. Protestants don't do that. Who is the man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man dedicate it. That seems to mean living it for a period of time, maybe a year. Who is the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man begin to use its fruit. Who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not yet taken her? Let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man marry her. Now that's the first thing. Then it says, Then, after that, the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Anybody who's scared can go home. So that's category two. Let's analyze category one. Also, Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go, without, not shall go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife, whom he has taken. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter against them. The man goes out of his way to make his wife happy for a year before he can be drafted. Now, there's a reason for that, that intense concentration on making your wife happy for a year. That's because when you go out to fight, then you really want to fight for the wife. 
see? Because the relationship has been built up and it's real strong. Now, what's the principle here? What, what are these three things about? A new house, you get to live in it for a while. A vineyard and a wife. Remind you of anything? What's the first battle in the Bible? The very first battle that takes place in the Bible. Somebody. It's, an, it's a situation where God's people are on the defensive and somebody comes and makes an aggressive attack. The garden, okay. Right, okay. So, Adam is supposed to fight the aggressor. Has God given Adam a house and dedicated it? Yes. Has Adam had a chance to eat some of the vineyard, the fruit that's in the garden? Yes. Has God given Adam a wife? And almost certainly he's taken her. I mean, would you waste time? Certainly. So, all right. Adam has been constituted, you see, in the kingdom here. House, environment, prosperity, wife. Adam has something to defend. Satan comes in. Adam should be motivated to defend him. See, theologically, that's what's going on, and practically as well. So here it is again. God says, I'm putting you in the Garden of Eden, and generation by generation, men are supposed to get into this Garden of Eden. And so man needs to have a house, vineyard, and a wife, and then he's ready to go out and fight and defend the nation because he has something to protect. Psychologically, that's important, but also theologically. It's not You don't have something to protect until you're established in the land. So anybody who ha doesn't have these things or who is in the process of getting them, I suppose if you've got a 20-year-old man who hasn't yet moved into any of this, is still single, he'd have to fight. He's fighting for his father, you see. He's fighting for mom and for dad. Dad's house, dad's vineyard, and mom. That's who he's fighting for, but he has a house that he defends. But the man who is in transition to making a new house, he gets to wait until he has a new house to defend. Is this clear? Because it's an important principle. I mean, what undermined American society during the Vietnam War? Thousands of men being sent over there who didn't who were in the process of trying to get married or plant vineyards or build houses. Is it freezing in here? Um, you don't do that. Here it is. Now there's a second principle in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. Then the officers shall speak further to the people. That's after all the guys who are moving into a new stage of life have departed. No shame in that. Everybody's happy. Everybody affirms them. Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. Now, some of the commentators have wanted to soften that up and say, well, some people are just constitutionally scared to fight. I'd say that Virtually any intelligent person uh, is constitutionally afraid to fight. If you're not afraid to fight, you're dumb, okay? So that's not the issue here. In fact, in context, we've just had a sermon that said, Do not be afraid or tremble before them, for the Lord is with you. So we have to say in context that the man who is afraid is the man who just doesn't really trust and believe in the promises of God. And that's too bad. But it's better that he go home than that we try to convert him right now on the spot.
If he's scared, even after all these promises, I mean too scared to fight, if his fear does not cause him to lay hold of his weapons and go ahead and, and gut it out, but causes him to want to run away, then it's time for him to melt away now rather than later. And anybody who's um, willing to admit that in front of all the other guys will go home. Now, of course, that happened on more than one occasion. Uh, there's example of it, <clears throat> examples of all these things in the book of Judges. Uh, it says in Judges chapter 7, starting in verse 2, The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. And Midian is only about 800,000 people here. And God says, You've got too many in your army. Lest Israel become boastful and say, My own power has delivered me. That, now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling... Let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men returned and went home, but 10,000 remained. So 32,000 people showed up, and uh, one guy said, I'm too scared to fight. And then all of a sudden, 21,999 other guys said, yeah, I'm too scared to fight too, and they all went home. That left 10,000. So they did it, and it was smart. <clears throat> Now, the army has been organized. Well, it's not been organized. It's been gathered. We now have it gathered. Now, these are the guys who are going to fight. Now we've got to organize them. Now there are different things you can do, and the Bible gives us examples of that too. In Judges 7, uh, verses 4 to 8, we find that now that this army has been gathered, we're going to set some of them aside, and they're going to wear the patch on their arm that says supply. We'll turn them into supply sergeants and quartermasters, and they will be in charge of supply, and the other guys, they're going to fight. So we have to establish a supply line. The Lord said to Gideon, this is Judges 7, verse 4, the people are still too many, bring them down to the water and I will test them. And you remember that he tests them and sets aside those who lap uh, like dogs, putting their hands down like a tongue and bringing it up to the mouth. 300 men. And the rest of them... Uh, provision the rest, the uh, 300 men. They go back to their tents and wait until the strike force of 300 has initially crippled the army, and then all the rest of them are going to come and get to fight too. But initially, they are put in a supply category. Similarly, in Judges chapter 20, verse 10, we see the army getting organized now that it's been mustered. We will take ten men out of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, and a hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of ten thousand, to supply food for the people. That is, we'll take one squad out of every company, we'll take one company out of every battalion, and one battalion out of every brigade to supply food for the people. And there'll be supply brigades, a su supply battalion, support group. And when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, okay, so people are set aside to be in charge of supply. The other thing that happens is you've got to find out who are the good army commanders. And, of course, all these years the militia has been meeting from time to time for drill and other things. And so we know who the guys are that are pretty sharp uh, commanders in the military. And so we set them aside. We see an example of that in Numbers 31, verse 14. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of thousands and the captains of hundreds, who had come from service in the war. Okay, that's talking about something else, but it reveals to us 
that the army was organized the same way the country was, with captains over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And this is talking about the military captains. Similarly, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 9, the officers speak to the people. Remember, they let people go home. It says, when it has come about that the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. So, the guys who are elders over tens, fifties, and hundreds, and thousands, the day-in and day-out guys, they get together and they say, this guy Washington, I think he'd do good as a commander. This guy Stonewall, he'd do pretty good as a commander. So, they appoint. They're still in charge, you know, it's a still civilian rule here, actually. Uh, civilian rule. Civilians make the decision as to who the generals are going to be. In a godly nation, that's not bad. In an ungodly nation, we see what's going on today. But at any rate, the principle is there. Now, the army has been called together, drafted. No peacetime draft, only a draft in time of war. And it's been organized. Now, how do these people get their arms? That's interesting, too. Normally, every man provided his own weapon. We see that in a number of different places in the Old Testament. They're called together and they have their weapons. Israel was an armed nation. And so much was this the case that various tribes tended to specialize in various weapons. We know that the tribe of Benjamin specialized in slingshots, for example. Uh, I have referred down here to First Chronicles 12, and I don't remember what it says, so let's look it up. Not the most familiar book in the Bible. Of Zebulun there were 50,000 who went out in the army who could draw up in battle formation with all kinds of weapons of war and helped David with an undivided heart. Of Naphtali there were a 1,000 captains and with them 37,000 with shield and spear. Of the Danites who could draw up in battle formation, 28,600. Okay? So there are different kinds of weapons that various tribes specialize in. Uh, the uh, Naphtalites specialized in shields and spear. Okay. Men brought their weapons from home. In general, men were provisioned from home. You see that in the story of Goliath. Remember, Jesse sends David with cheese and other things for the family. So families supplied their own family members in battle, from home or by friends. Sometimes, of course, supply lines were set up, as we've seen. And later, under the monarchy, the state supplied weapons and provisions when necessary. You see that in Second Chronicles 26, verse 14. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and slingshots. Now, in context, this is not talking about the professional army, but the militia. The government made sure that everybody was armed. Now, is that bad or good? It's indifferent. I think it's a matter of whether or not uh, of what stage of history the nation is at. A highly developed nation state such as you have by this time, it's possible and proper for the government to say we want to make sure the militia is armed so we'll make sure every man has a weapon. It's my understanding that in Switzerland today they do that. The government makes sure everybody has a weapon. If you can't afford it yourself, they give it to you. You've got to keep it up. But they provide it, and you maintain it. 
So that's what we have here at this stage in history. It would be proper, I think, for a local government, Tyler, for instance, to assist a poor man in obtaining his own weapons if he cannot afford one. We could study uh, Israelite armaments through the Old Testament. The first time the Israelite ar army was provisioned with weapons was when? Anybody remember how the Israelite army got their first weapons? That's right. Exodus 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So there were all those weapons down there just waiting to be taken. And believe me, they took them. That's where they got them. Remember, to make iron and uh, various alloys, you had to have forges and things like that. You're roaming around the wilderness for 40 years, you don't have access to a lot of highly technological equipment like that. So where did Israel get their weapons? Almost certainly from the carcasses of the Egyptians. Now, during the period of Judges, you find that uh, the invaders would come in and disarm the citizenry. They passed shield, uh, spear control laws, especially spears. Um, and they were able to sustain that because of the iron monopoly. 1 Samuel 13, 19 through 22, tells us this. Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, We don't want the Hebrews to make swords and spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his goad. Whenever they had to sharpen the edge of the goads or the mattocks of the forks and of the axes to fix the goad points. Okay? So it came about on the day of the battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and Jonathan. In other words, there were all of two spears in the entire land. Saul had one. The traditional iconography of King Saul shows him sitting on a throne with a spear. Saul didn't let that spear go out of his hand. He jabbed it at a variety of people. That's a mistake in the movie King David, by the way. You see a bunch of spears around, and Saul grabs one and throws it at David. Saul grabs another one. No, there was just one spear. Saul had it. And he jabbed at David with it on a number of occasions, but he didn't let it go. It was the symbol of his rule, a symbol of such power as he had. So, during this period, you get other kinds of weapons come to the forefront, such as slingshots. It wasn't that unusual that David could wield a sling. You see, there wasn't all that many other kinds of things. Slings and arrows. Jonathan used arrows. David used slings. Slingshot. But it wasn't that unusual. You don't have any iron. You don't have any swords. You don't have any spears because the U.S. federal government has got these things under control. I mean, the, uh, the Philistines have got these things under control. Now, two things emerge from all this, which are important for us, not being Anabaptists. First is that godly people always sought to be armed and trained in weaponry, and they sought out obscure weapons when normal ones were forbidden to them. Godly people always sought to be trained and armed, and they sought out obscure weapons when normal ones were forbidden to them. That's a principle. Universal weapons training. 
So when we uh, get all the teenagers up here and start drilling them around, you understand what we're doing? No. Maybe not the church's business to do it, but that was the rule. Second, a preeminent goal of any tyrannical or oppressive state is to disarm the population. And an attempt to disarm the population is fundamentally satanic. It's Philistine. Disarm the population. Of course you want the population disarmed. Then they can't resist whatever you want to push down on them. So that's how they were armed. They were armed with anything that came to hand. David had his five stones. Does anybody remember why he had five stones? There were five giants, right. Okay. How was the militia paid? Okay, they were paid by booty from the war. And let's just look at that in closing today. In Numbers 31, we have this kind of exemplary battle that takes place in Numbers 31 that we could study in detail, but we won't. Uh, I mean, we could read it over and it would, we would find that it says all the things, same things we've been getting at all along, so there's not much any, any need to. But after the battle, <clears throat> they divided it all up. Numbers 31, 27 to 47. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You and Eleazar the priest and the heads of the father's households of the congregation, take account of the booty that was captured, both of man and of animal, and divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the rest of the congregation. Okay, first rule. Everybody gets some booty. The guys who were too scared to fight, they get some. They get a benefit. The guys who were building their homes and vineyards or just about to get married, they get some. But you've got... You've got your, your army that fought, and you've got everybody else, and you divide it in half. So the army that fought, they're going to get more. You've got 10,000 men who fought and 100,000 men who didn't fight, then, you know, you divide that in half. These guys, the 10,000, are going to get percentage-wise 10 times as much as the 100,000 who didn't fight. So that's fair. Everybody benefits. Now, after that, you levy a tax for the Lord from the men of war who went out for battle. Okay, so we're talking about the guys who actually fought. They get more. And they're supposed to give one out of every 500 persons, one out of every 500 cattle, donkeys, and sheep. It's a lot less than a tithe. It's one in 500. Okay. Take it from their half, one in 500, and give it to Eleazar the priest as an offering to the Lord. Actually, it says heave offering. And from the sons of Israel's half, that is, everybody else over here, the guys who didn't have to fight, you shall take one out of every 50 persons. Aha, one in 50. So they are, what they have to give up is more. Because they benefited, they didn't go to anywhere near as much risk. Again, this is real just when you stop, thinking about it, stop to think about it. One out of 50 of the persons, cattle, donkeys, and sheep from all the animals, and give them to the Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. Uh, the government doesn't seem to get anything here. Moses and Eleazar the priests did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Interesting, it says Moses and Eleazar are to, are to do it together. That is, the head of the state, Moses, and the head of the church, Eleazar. Aaron is dead by this time. When Aaron dies, then the conquest begins. The death of the high priest takes away all the sin, and they're able to move into the land. So Eleazar is the high priest. So church and state are to cooperate in this, and none of it goes to Moses and to the state. Then it discusses, I mean, in the rest of the chapter here, it gives you all the numbers and the statistics of what actually took place.
And you could read that over if you wanted. Well, that's how they were paid. Okay? Percentage was given to the church. It should be noted, I've already made this point, that no booty went to the conference of the state and no special amount went to the leaders of the state or to the military commanders. Now, it was possible to give a voluntary gift to the guy who led the army. We see an example of that in Judges chapter 8. Gideon. And this is Gideon's big mistake, as a matter of fact. Chapter uh, Judges 8, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and also your grandson. In other words, let's have a dynasty here. For you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, Not I shall rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord is your king, and the Lord shall rule over you. Great stuff. But Gideon said to them, I do have one request. Would each of you give me an earring from his spoil? For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. The Jews never wore earrings because they had used their earrings to build the golden calf. And so, as a permanent reminder of that, the Jews never wore earrings. Now, remember that. The original earrings that they had went to build a golden calf. And, unfortunately, these earrings are going to be used to build another golden calf. Verse 26 says, The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and all this other stuff. And Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in the city of Aphra, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So I guess we could draw from that that you should never let the state get any of the spoils of war because they're sure to build an ephod with it. Well, not necessarily, but it is interesting that in this one example that we have, that's exactly what happened. Uh, it was supposed to go to the church, and I'm sure that the pr proper percentage did in this situation. But then the money that was given to the state was used to set up an idol. Okay, next time we will look at the history of the militia in Israel. And what we'll find is that the people demanded that they wanted a king. And God says, if you have a king, he's going to draft all your sons into a standing army, not an occasional militia that gets called up. And who was the king who instituted that? David. And it's all recorded for us. Saul never did it. It was waited for David to commit the big sin of destroying, trying to destroy the militia and incorporating it into a national army. And we'll look at that next time. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.